0: The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Hello, I'm Dr. Andres Ritt. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're talking about mini-IVF, or minimal stimulation IVF. To go over this topic, we've invited Dr. Ann Davis. Dr. Davis earned her medical degree from UCSF, after which she completed her residency at McGee in Pittsburgh and then went on to carry out her REA fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. Today, Dr. Davis serves as the medical director for Pearl Mini IVF, a fertility center based in San Diego, California, that recently opened in January of 2021. Dr. Davis, thank you so, so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. I really am excited to be here.
0: You completed your fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic and have published on uterine transplants, perhaps the most aggressive approach possible to, to address infertility. <laughs> you now run Pearl Mini IVF, which seems like a bit of a you know, 180 degree turn from that. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today.
1: My work in Cleveland was actually incredibly inspirational in terms of what I am doing now. And I think that's in large part because it made me recognize that we're We have patients, patient populations in fertility medicine that are more refractory than others to typical treatments. And certainly the case of patients requiring a uterine transplant, those with MRKH or Meyer-Rokitansky syndrome, in which they are born without a uterus, are one of those extremes. Um, They need a uterus that's going to come in the form of a gestational carrier, um, and that's it for them. They can create their own embryos, but they cannot carry a pregnancy. And through my work with those patients and recognizing the difficulty that they had experienced with going through the process of using a gestational carrier with adoption um, really helped me to understand why it was so important for them to be undergoing this experimental process. Um, They had an extreme form of infertility and it required an extreme level of treatment. Interestingly, when you think about minimal stimulation IVF, although it may look from an invasiveness standpoint as though it's the opposite of a uterine transplant. In fact, the reason I ended up steering my career towards minimal stimulation is for a similar reason. It's that there is a patient population, those with diminished ovarian reserve, who are often very refractory to treatment and have a more extreme form of infertility than, than others. And so when you kind of take it from that perspective, what for me was so important was being able to offer an opportunity and another chance to patients who had potentially failed in traditional cycles or had felt that their case was just Hopeless in the first place, or had been told that their case was hopeless in the first place. And so, really, for me, it was more a matter of I want to reach out to a population that I don't think is being served well. Through that, though, as I learned more about minimal stimulation and the protocol itself, which was initially. Um, created for patients with diminished ovarian reserve, I began to realize that there was a, an elegance and a beauty to the minimal stimulation protocol that, to me, begged to be applied in other situations beyond diminished ovarian reserve. For example, polycystic ovary syndrome where we have patients that we are concerned will hyperstim. And so I started thinking, you know, <clears throat> maybe this is a protocol that we could apply a little bit more widely. And tailor more to patient preference, especially those patients who have been reticent to engage with IVF treatment for not just the typical reasons that we all think about—you know, cost, time—but because of needle phobia or because of a, a you know a, phil- a philosophy that they didn't want to have their body, you know, taken over by hormones or to be injecting such such high levels of hormones. Um, felt to them like it was very antithetical to what their goal was. And so I thought, wow, you know, that's a whole nother population that's not currently being served. These are the patients that avoid IVF, you know, for these reasons. And so I started working with um, one of the medical directors for our sister company, IVI, in Spain, um, Alfonso Bermejo. He is the medical director of MINIFIV, which is a minimal stimulation clinic in Madrid. And he and I started to collaborate. I went and visited him and worked with him several times um, and really was able to appreciate the incredible benefit and the incredible opportunity that a minimal stimulation program, in that, or rather one that had a special focus on minimal stimulation, um, was able to offer um, to not just patients who had been failing treatment previously, but to patients who had never engaged with treatment in the first place. And that's really how it all started. So really, you know, not as different as it sounds on the outside.
0: Such Such an interesting story. Now, walk us a little bit through what is mini IVF exactly? How does it differ from, so to speak, traditional IVF?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So mini-IVF, minimal stimulation IVF, was a protocol that evolved ultimately with the intention of providing a more natural, more gentle form of stimulation um, and the way Dr. Kato in Japan first did this in the late '80s was by looking at how clomiphene citrate, or Clomid, a drug that we have used in our industry for you know decades, um, could be maybe more effectively utilized in this particular population of patients with diminished ovarian reserve. And so what he what he recognized with it was that because Clomid is a competitive inhibitor of estradiol, you can use that to stimulate the ovary because it elevates FSH secretion directly from the pituitary gland. Typically, we only use Clomid for the five days. That's how we're doing ovulation injection. And that's the process by which Clomid typically works. However, he thought, what if we kept the Clomid going a little bit longer? What if we just had that throughout because it will also help us by inhibiting the LH surge and we won't have to worry about an antagonist. And so as he started to work through these protocols, he realized that he could do a longer stimulation because the Clomid would allow for a more gentle approach that was coming straight from the pituitary without risk of premature ovulation. And in doing so, he could also add a small amount of FSH just every other day, which would then accelerate slightly the follicle development, raise estradiol slightly and ultimately get to a retrieval with the goal of being six to eight very high quality oocytes as opposed to a goal of 10 to 15 oocytes. And so really the beauty in the protocol was about Clomid and it was about the oral agent being able to carry the job and the responsibility that we often will just add additional injections for. The other beauty of Clomid um, and Letrozole, because we can use both, is that it's providing more stimulation to the HPO access and encouraging that access to work on its own. So we're getting more involvement, more physiologic involvement from the brain. And it's not that this could play some of the role in terms of how recruitment then happens in minimal stimulation cycles and why potentially we have some data that may indicate oocyte quality is improved with a minimal stimulation protocol.
0: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of these early papers from the 80s because I was going to ask you, you know, mini-IVF has seen a bit of a rebirth, if you will, lately, but this is not a new idea at all, is it? it has, the idea itself, the concept, has been around for quite a while.
1: It has, yeah. It has been around for quite a long time. Like I mentioned, Dr. Cato uh, first uh, pioneered this protocol in the late 80s, specifically with the intention of finding a better protocol for his patients with diminished ovarian reserve. So these were patients who had gone through typical low responder protocols with maximal doses of FSH, often you know reaching 500, 600 units daily. Um, and at the end of these cycles, he was observing that they would produce four or five eggs um, that were not very high quality. And so that's when he decided to say, how can we take a more physiologic approach to better allow the ovary in these patients to make a choice and to choose better eggs? Because we know the eggs are there. We know we know there are good quality eggs, even in these patients, they're just very, very hard to find. And so his idea was involve the ovary, allow the ovary a chance to choose by not maximizing these medications. And so he did that while using the Clomiphene to help engage the brain and the pituitary hypothalamus access and found that with 150 units every other day of FSH plus 50 of Clomid going for maybe 12 to 14 days, the same patients would produce four or five oocytes. But interestingly, their fertilization rate was tremendously better. And the likelihood that they would create a day five blastocyst was much better as well. So he really stumbled onto an idea that really the fundamental idea that less is really more. And that when we take a step back from our typical approach, which is we just have to get all the eggs we possibly can, we may actually do more good. And it's important to think back to why our approach has been traditionally, it's important to get as many eggs as we can. And that all originated in our ability, or rather at the beginning, our inability to culture embryos really effectively in the lab. And so we knew we had to battle an attrition rate typically of, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 80% when it came to oocyte yield and and embryo yield. Um, you know, a typical patient would yield 15 eggs, maybe 12 fertilize, you know, eight make it to blast. And if you do genetic testing, you might have four or five good looking embryos. And so often the question that I get is, well, wait a second, so what are we doing by only trying to get six to eight eggs? Doesn't that mean there's no way we're gonna wind up with you know, good transferable embryos? And the answer is really that we see typically less attrition in these cycles. Now again, this is something that is actively under research and is being actively debated in the field. However, in my experience, fertilization rates Blast rates and um, and transfer rates tend to be quite good in these cycles. Specifically, we can see attrition rates from um, for fertilization of less than ten percent, so ninety percent fertilization, you know, seventy percent making it to blast. Testing is where things get a little bit difficult. So PGTA is a challenge for our patients, and we can touch on that a little bit later. Um, but with or without testing, we're still able to come to. 2 to 3 good looking embryos from starting at only 6 to 8 eggs. So, you know, really this idea that let's let's allow the body, let's allow the HPO access to participate in this process and ultimately we think that is going to allow for better quality product.
0: That's such a such an interesting approach, right? It's essentially you're enhancing follicular growth but at the same time maintaining a good degree of natural selection
1: within the ovary, right? You got it. That's a great way to put it. Absolutely. Now,
0: would you say mini-IVF sort of bridges the gap between natural IVF and, so to speak, traditional IVF?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really it's a really good stepping stone, certainly. And I think especially, you know, for patients coming to IVF anew who have not undergone treatment before, minimal stimulation tends to be a much more appealing option for these patients for a number of reasons. And I think what you're alluding to is one of them, which is that it just doesn't have the same feeling of extreme that a traditional IVF cycle has. Most patients, when they're counseled about a traditional IVF cycle, are told, you know, they need to basically clear their calendar for several weeks because they're going to need to monitor, you know, every other day or daily towards the end of their cycle. Um, You know, they are shipped upwards of $5,000 in medications that they themselves have to manage at home and hope not to make a mistake with because they've put not so much, not just money into those medications, but, you know, triple that amount of money also into the cycle. And so the feeling of pressure and um, just that sense of being overwhelmed by the responsibility of managing your own treatment as a patient um, is in, is incredibly, it, it just drives people away. And so I think with minimal stimulation, what I can do is tell my patients, hey, you don't have to clear your calendar. I'm only going to have you in here three or four times throughout your entire stimulation phase because I'm not as worried about hyperstimulation as I would be in a traditional protocol. I can tell them that their medication costs are going to be under $1,000 and that the overall cost of the entire cycle is about half of a traditional cycle. So immediately just from that initial consult, patients feel a sense of relief and a sense of, oh, okay, this is doable. And, you know, if I had to do it again, I'd be able to, and it wouldn't feel like such a burden, Um, whether that be a financial burden, a time burden, a physical burden, all of those things. Every type of burden that the patients are undergoing with minimal stimulation is is decreased. And therefore their tolerance um, and willingness to complete cycles tends to go up quite a bit. Um, And we do find that patients will often cycle more than once. I even have had patients who I actively recommended a more traditional protocol for various reasons and had patients say, no, I really like doing this in a minimal stimulation way. I don't want to stress myself out. If it takes two cycles, I'm fine with that. And that's been really eye-opening and very interesting as to some of the reasons patients, you know, really may be leaving care or choosing not to enter care in the first place.
0: Right, and I can really see how this can be very, very appealing for for patients, for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about which patients are very good candidates for mini-IVF, and are there any who aren't?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So certainly, you know, one of the groups that is a, that are great candidates for this uh, type of, of IVF are going to be those patients for whom the protocol was originally derived, which is patients with diminished ovarian reserve, premature ovarian insufficiency, um, or patients who are just what we call low responders or refractory responders who, for whatever reason, despite relatively normal indicators of fertility do not respond to stimulating medicines as, as one might expect. So that population certainly right off the bat is, you know, is a big one because that's who the protocol was it originally designed for. But pretty quickly, I started realizing that the other, another population, as I mentioned earlier, is that is so great for this protocol is the polycystic ovarian patients. Um, you know, these are patients with high AMHs, high antral counts, and As an REI physician, I have a high concern that they have a potential to hyperstimulate during their cycle. And because they respond typically so well to medications, I started deciding, hey, let's try some minimal stimulation protocols with the high responders, and in fact, We saw equal success there. In fact, patients felt so much more comfortable because most of our PCO patients um, had either been through treatment before or had been warned about treatment as a result of their condition and that there are things that could happen for them that were more likely in them than in other patients. And so what we started finding was patients, especially those high responders, gravitated toward this protocol in the hopes of reducing their personal risk, um, but still being able to complete IVF and have, you know, embryos to transfer and potentially to save. Um, so that was the second group, I think that really for me, um, became a big became a big factor in and who this was a good protocol for. And then I'd say, you know, I don't know if I could call it a group per se, but I would say, in addition to those two kind of extremes, if you will, in terms of responsivity, those folks in the middle who are maybe, you know, would be fine candidates for a traditional protocol, there are many people in that situation who have avoided IVF, like I mentioned, because they don't feel like it's good for their body. They are concerned about cancer risk. They are afraid of injections. They are worried about um, stigma from family and coworkers because it's so difficult to keep traditional IVF quiet when you're at the doctor's office every day or every other day. And so there is this whole population of patients who have come to me specifically because they know that they need help and they need treatment, but they have they had yet to find a protocol or a practice that would really fit their needs. And so I think, you know, the group of patients that have avoided treatment for, you know, reasons of mostly treatment anxiety has also been a really, really great group. This is a, you know, it's almost like an introduction to IVF. And certainly some of these patients, you know, may come to see me and request minimal stimulation IVF. And I may tell them based on their specifics that it would be better to do a a traditional type protocol. However, there's very few patients who You know, if I'm pressed, I would ever say no to because minimal stimulation is such a safe protocol. So, you know, really the biggest risk, you know, specifically for patients, for example, who want to do, you know, PGTM, you know, for an autosomal dominant disease. You know, I have several patients right now doing minimal stimulation and doing PGTM testing, which at the beginning I said, hey, you're going to have to do a number of cycles. We have to expect 50% of your embryos to be affected. And if we're only making, you know, three or four per cycle, it's going to take us a little while. And they're on board with that. That's what's comfortable for them. And that's how they are comfortable doing it. And and I've been told specifically that they wouldn't have done IVF at all if it weren't for the option to do mini-STEM. So I think that's, you know, that's another big group too.
0: Now, I wanted to ask you about the effect of Clomid on the endometrium Do you see that with letrozole as well? Do these need to be freeze-all cycles necessarily because of the effect of clomid on the endometrium? Or can we do a natural transfer with many IVF?
1: You know, historically, we've always had concerns about clomid affecting the lining, specifically thinning it. Um, thinning it out and potentially altering its ability to to be receptive to an embryo. And certainly that remains an issue here with these patients. I typically, with my patients who I'm starting on a minimal stimulation protocol, will start with Clomid and monitor closely early in the cycle to make sure that that we're not going to have lining issues. However, I will say that what I have observed is that because we are staying with such a low dose of Clomid, and we do that so that we can administer it for a longer period of time, I have seen less thinning of the linings than I actually expected to. But in those few patients where the lining is still an issue, or we know going into the cycle that lining has been an issue in the past, I will preferentially use letrozole, and I have not seen those issues with letrozole. So I still have quite a few patients who are opting to do fresh transfers um, you know, in addition to those who opt to freeze all and then do a, a frozen embryo cycle later.
0: Interesting. Now. What does the science say in terms of outcomes of mini IVF versus traditional IVF? Are there any randomized control trials? Do we what is what is the research out there about this?
1: Yeah. So, you know, RCTs are certainly hard to do in this population. There's quite a number of good retrospective cohorts. Um, It's difficult only because when you're randomizing to a protocol that's specific, you know, that that most providers view as specific to a certain population, it's it's difficult to truly randomize. Um, But there was, you know, there's been a couple of really good studies recently. Um, In fact, one that came out in 2014 from a group in Canada um, was specifically comparing IVF outcomes between uh, mini-STEM protocols and high-dose protocols for these poor ovarian reserve patients. So really, you know, kind of test with the with the population that this protocol is designed for. And certainly, they found that the clinical pregnancy rate out of this group, so they had 70 patients in the minimal stimulation pool, and they had 71 patients in the high-dose uh, stimulation group. And of those patients, the clinical pregnancy rate was actually significantly higher in the minimal stimulation protocol compared to the high-STEM protocol. And that was with a P of 0.007. Um, and then the live birth rate in addition, so that was clinical pregnancy, but the live birth rate was also significantly higher in the minimal stimulation group um, compared to the high stimulation group, which you know for our patients is huge, right? You know clinical pregnancy is one thing, but what our patients want is they want to take home a baby. And this study really helped support the idea that this is a protocol specifically in the poor responder population that will work and and potentially be better for their outcomes. But there was another study actually that came out in 2012 um, that looked at specifically minimal stimulation protocols versus high stimulation protocols, for high responders, so this is more like the PCO group. So this is really saying, okay, fine. We know that minimal stimulation may be maybe a good thing for diminished ovarian reserve, but what about these other patients? And in fact, they were able to find very very similar findings in young normal ovulatory patients with good response good responsiveness. The mild stimulation protocol is still effective. And decreases risks comparable to a high dose regimen. Um, and so, you know, some of these studies have really helped for, for me and for other providers of minimal stimulation IVF some support in the idea that this doesn't need to be a protocol only for diminished ovarian reserve. This is a protocol that has more broad applicability than I think we've realized as a field.
0: Right, right. And then there's also the the other component of it you were mentioning earlier, right, which is the patient satisfaction that goes with it. And, you know, in the end, of course, it all comes down to patient autonomy and just giving them all the information.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, do you think within the IVF process as a whole, we're going to see other parts that are not ovarian stimulation itself geared toward a, a gentler approach, perhaps a more physiologic approach?
1: Yeah, I do. I, you know, and I think that's going to come you know, in a slightly different form. And, and really, it's something that I've I've started to try and pioneer here at Pearl, which is the idea that our patients, in addition to needing protocols that are more gentle and responsive, you know, and personalized to the patient, we need support systems in place that are responsive and personalized to our patients as well. Um, Ali Domar, you know, a fabulous clinician out of Boston, has done a tremendous body of work on the experience patients have when they receive an infertility diagnosis, or even when they receive a diagnosis of diminished ovarian reserve or premature ovarian failure, um, and she has found in her studies that that experience that our patients have is very similar to that of cancer patients. Cancer patients, when they're given the initial diagnosis, um, you know, are also in shock and are also completely overwhelmed and, and feel hopeless and helpless all at once, as do our patients. The difference has often been though, that in cancer patients, there's a mechanism in place um, within the medical system to provide a tremendous amount of support for these patients They are, You know, immediately they have a patient navigator, they have a nutritionist, they have someone from behavioral health, and they have all of these uh, support services coordinated for them. Our patients aren't seeing that, and so that is where I think really the future is for fertility medicine: is recognizing as a field that we owe it to our patients to make these services not just, you know, accessible or identified, but to bring the services to our patients, bringing the nutritionists in house, bringing counselors, mental health professionals in house, you know, bringing acupuncture and um, Chinese medicine or alternative treatments in house to allow patients to feel like if those are um, adjuvant treatments or adjuvant support systems that they want to engage with, that their fertility clinic supports that and will uh, facilitate it happening. And so that's where I really see fertility going in the future in terms of you know how things may change. But I do think minimal stimulation is going to be the catalyst for that, because I think that's going to draw in these patients who will demand that we do a better job in providing those services.
0: Definitely, definitely. Dr. Davis, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us today. That has been super eye-opening. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I sure have. Thanks for
1: being here. Absolutely, Andre. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a lot of fun.
0: This has been another episode of Fertilipod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.